Hey everyone, so a friend of mine got in touch and recommended that I watch the Netflix documentary series The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, and then review it on the show, and so I watched the entire series. Technically, I think I watched it at least two or three times, which is usually what I do with something I plan on reviewing. I like to view the content in question multiple times while taking notes to help make sure I don't miss anything. And if you're my friend listening to this, don't worry, I didn't mind having to watch the series more than once. I actually found the subject matter really darkly fascinating, and I enjoyed really delving in and getting the kind of play amateur detective myself, you know, compiling all these notes and trying to make sense of everything. And so after my friend first told me about the series, I went and did a quick search online, and I saw that it focuses on this idea that David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, may not have acted alone. And so even though I found this idea intriguing, for some reason my expectations were kind of low. I thought maybe it would be some relatively tame theory that there may have been a second shooter or some kind of accomplice. And you guys know me and the occult. I'm a skeptic, a non-believer, don't believe in the supernatural, etc. And yet I'm absolutely fascinated by things like demonology and the occult. And what I got with this show was an absolute occult smorgasbord. Uh, we've got satanic cults, spooky symbols, bloody sacrifices, and even ties to Scientology and the Manson family. Now, most of us are probably aware of the basics. A killer known as the Son of Sam terrorized New York City with a string of shootings taking place between 1976 and 1977. In total, the so-called Son of Sam, previously known as the 44 caliber killer, due to the bulldog revolver he used in the shootings, killed six and wounded seven others. He mainly targeted couples in parked cars late at night and seemed to have a fixation or preference for girls with long dark hair. Eventually, the killer was apprehended and revealed to be David Berkowitz, a young postal worker living in Yonkers. Berkowitz had claimed that he had been ordered to commit the murders by his neighbor Sam Carr's black Labrador retriever named Harvey. Harvey, such an innocent name. I think I've heard conflicting accounts. In some versions, it's stated that Berkowitz believes Sam Carr himself was a 6,000-year-old demonic entity who spoke to Berkowitz through his dog, ordering him to kill. And in others, it seems to be implied that it may have been the dog itself giving the orders directly, and that the dog may have been or been possessed by some kind of thousand-year-old demonic entity. But if you look at the Son of Sam letters, which I'll read from a bit later, Berkowitz seems to be clearly stating or heavily implying that it was ultimately, well, at least according to his bizarre narrative, that was either a psychotic delusion or something he or maybe someone else concocted, that it was Sam Carr himself, either directly or indirectly via his dog, giving the marching orders, so to speak, hence the name Son of Sam. 
But the mainstream narrative has long been that Berkowitz was just a deranged loner. So all this stuff about cults and links to the Manson family might seem rather far-fetched. But I'll say up front that, although some of it seems like a bit of a stretch, surprisingly there's actually a significant amount of merit to the theory presented in the series. And Paul Giamatti is the narrator, and he basically serves as the voice of Maury Terry, an investigative journalist who passed away in 2015, but had been investigating the Son of Sam case since the 70s. And it's Maury Terry who connected the dots and came up with this theory that Berkowitz wasn't acting alone, and as crazy as it sounds, that there may even have been one or more cults involved. So I think I'll now just kind of go over the notes I took and give you a breakdown as well as my personal take as we go. Oh, and I have to mention, I'm a fan of the kind of Scottish psychedelic folk musician Donovan, and every episode of The Sons of Sam, there's four episodes in all, starts off with a rendition of Donovan's song, Season of the Witch, and I don't know who the female singer is, but the version kicks ass. Uh, yeah, and it's funny, I've been noticing Season of the Witch, you know, popping up a lot lately. I think Lana Del Rey did a cover uh, not that long ago. And then Season 2 of the TV series Britannia had the original version as its theme song. And I just looked it up. Joan Jett did the uh, Sons of Sam version. And I actually thought the singer sounded like Joan Jett, but the backing music sounded kind of modern for some reason. So I dismissed the idea that it may have been her. Looks like she recorded it back in 2004. And it's off of her 2004 album, Naked. Uh, that's funny. My sister, who, like myself, is a singer, she also plays guitar. Uh, she's always been a huge Joan Jett fan. I think she actually met her before. Anyway, onward, going off on digressions already. Uh, so once again, it's a documentary style series, and so it kind of jumps back and forth between interviews with Maury Terry's friends and retired law enforcement officers, and Paul Giamatti once again providing the narration and kind of um, giving voice to Maury Terry's own words, or so I think. And if they are indeed Maury Terry's words verbatim, I'm not sure if they're taken from the book that Maury would eventually publish about the case, or maybe from memoirs or journals or correspondence or whatever, or maybe be a combination. But Giamatti, as the voice of Maury Terry, kind of gives you a window into Maury Terry's head, his thoughts on the case, his suspicions and hunches, how he connected the dots, etc. And so they start by giving us a little background info as to where Maury was in life before he threw himself into investigating the Son of Sam case. Apparently in the summer of 77, he was 31 years old, or so I think, and working at IBM as an editor for their in-house magazine. Friends and family interviewed for the show describe Maury as having been from a young age, highly intelligent with an excellent memory, almost uncannily so, and possessing an inquisitive and investigative nature, being really good at solving puzzles, deciphering codes, that kind of thing. 
They also describe him as having been very idealistic. Supposedly, as a young reporter in his early 20s, I believe, he had covered the aftermath of the MLK assassination, the riots and arrests, etc., and apparently the editors of the publication he was working for killed the story and published their own sanitized version that downplayed the civil unrest. And I think the point they're trying to make with this anecdote is that because Maury Terry was supposedly, you know, very principled and idealistic, that being silenced and having his story quashed may have made him that much more determined to pursue the truth and make sure that it gets out there. And that perhaps we can see that exemplified in his passionate investigation or pursuit of the truth in the Son of Sam case. And so I mentioned the Son of Sam letters a little bit ago. The first letter was found in the Bronx at the scene of the shooting of Alexander Esau, I think it is, and Valentina Suriani. Esau was a tow truck operator, and Suriani was an aspiring model. The couple had been sitting in a car belonging to Esau's brother, when they were suddenly both shot in the head by the Son of Sam, a.k.a. the forty-four caliber killer. The shooting took place around 3 a.m. on April 17, 1977. The police discovered the killer's letter near the bodies. It was addressed to Captain Joe Borelli, Queen's Homicide. And I've read from photographs of the original Son of Sam letters, but for the sake of convenience, I'll read from a text version of this first letter. And so it starts off, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater, and I should stop to say that there's a number of misspelled words in the Son of Sam letters, and I'm not sure if maybe at least some of them were intentional, meant to be a kind of witty play on words or whatever, because at least once in this first Son of Sam letter that I'm reading from now, he misspells women as W-E-M-O-N, and I don't know if, uh... This is meant to be a kind of misogynistic thing where he's intentionally spelling women similar to the way you would spell demon, uh, you know, implying that women are evil or whatever. Yeah, so it starts, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam, in quotes. I am a little brat, and brat is also in quotation marks. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young raped and slaughtered. Their blood drained. Just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out. But I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else. Some of the, it's funny when you're, there's some, I hate to say cool wording because we're talking about someone who killed innocent human beings. But being someone who's into kind of dark stuff, I do like kind of some of the lurid, demonic, you know, imagery or whatever. But some of it reminds me of like a young angsty, you know, edgelord or whatever. Probably similar to things I would have scrib scribbled in a notebook back in the day. Um, 
Anyway, I'm on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die! Exclamation mark. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. And this next quote, some uh, surmise or guess that he was trying to write out what should be read as uh, a, a Scottish accent. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The Weemon of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water, it must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more, no, sir, no more, but I must. Honor thy father, in quotes. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos, to the people of Queens. I love you. And I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as... Bang, 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 bank, bang, ugh, yours in murder, Mr. Monster. And it's strange, that word bank, that isn't a typo typed up by whoever typed up this version I'm reading now. That appears in the original handwritten letter. You see this kind of crudely scrawled writing, and it says bang, 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 bank, bang. So, strange. And it was interesting, they played a clip from an old interview with a psychologist uh, from back when the killer was still at large, I believe. And it reminded me of the psychological profile of Andre Chikatilo. If you listen to that episode I did on real-life cannibals mentioned in the anime series Attack on Titan, I talked about Andre Chikatilo, uh, the Soviet serial killer and cannibal who targeted women and girls. And a profiler said that the killer in the case, this was prior to Chikatilo's capture, was probably someone who was sexually ineffective and his knife probably served as a kind of surrogate phallus. And there ended up being truth in that Andre Chikatilo did struggle with chronic impotence. Well, this psychologist commenting on the Son of Sam case said that the killer who mostly targeted women and, and uh, couples and cars was probably also sexually ineffective or struggled with some sense of sexual inadequacy. And that in his case, his signature weapon, a 44 caliber bulldog revolver, probably served as a kind of surrogate phallus and that the shooting was kind of the orgasm, to put it bluntly. And I think whether or not that assessment is valid depends on a number of factors that we'll get into, like whether or not Berkowitz was acting alone and what the true motive behind the shootings was. And it's funny, I think one of the most iconic or well-known aspects of the notorious Son of Sam case 
is Berkowitz's bizarre, seemingly delusional or even psychotic claim that his neighbor's dog was talking to him and commanding him to go out and kill, as we were discussing earlier. And yet I don't think the psychologist I mentioned, nor another psychologist who they play a clip of later in the series, who I believe was tasked with determining his fitness to stand trial, ever really address whether or not he was delusional or psychotic. They both seem to focus more on what appeared to be his issues with women, his misanthropic tendencies, etc., which I thought was kind of strange, but in fairness, I'm just going by the clips that were included in the series. I'm sure there's probably more detailed information on his mental competency or lack thereof out there. And in fact, I'm back through the magic of editing. And I found the following on encyclopedia.com. Is that a step up or down from Wikipedia? I'm not sure, but please don't judge me. Anyway, so as it says, a psychiatric report delivered to New York State Supreme Court justices in all three boroughs on August 30th concluded that David Berkowitz was not mentally capable of assisting in his own defense and did not understand the charges against him. Psychiatrist Daniel Schwartz and Richard Weinenbacher, I think it is, Weidenbacher Jr., felt that Berkowitz was, in quotes, well aware of the six murder charges, understood that they were criminal acts, and had, in quotes, the intellectual capacity to understand the legal process unfolding against him. Yet the doctors concluded that paranoid psychosis left Berkowitz so, in quotes once again, emotionally dead that he was neither capable nor interested in assisting in his own defense. And so there's a few more short paragraphs here that I'll just try to quickly slog through. Uh, Brooklyn District Attorney Eugene Gold challenged the report, obtaining court approval for Berkowitz's examination by prosecution psychiatrist Dr. David Abramson, I think it is. A month of interviews convinced Dr. Abramson that Berkowitz's demons were, in quotes, a conscious invention he was able to control, not a psychotic disorder which controlled his actions. Abramson declared that Berkowitz could understand the legal process and assist in his own defense if he chose to do so. Justice John R. Starkey agreed at a competency hearing on October 21st, a week later. Justice Starkey withdrew from the case amidst a furor over controversial statements he had made to the press about Berkowitz's intention to blame his actions on the demons. A new competency hearing was scheduled for the following spring, before a different judge. At the second hearing, psychiatrist Schwartz and Weidenbacher reversed their original opinion. They reported that Berkowitz's mental condition was improving from treatment. While not suggesting that he was sane at the time he allegedly committed the murders, they agreed that Berkowitz was now able to participate in his defense. Their reversal helped Judge Joseph R. Corso determine that Berkowitz was mentally fit to stand trial. 
Throughout the proceedings, again, David Berkowitz remained determined to plead guilty, a decision he insisted was his own, in spite of the advice of his quote-unquote demons. His attorneys unsuccessfully tried to persuade him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Expectations of a guilty plea were so high that a special agreement was reached to consolidate all of the legal proceedings to a single trial venue for security and to save court costs. Yeah, so it seems like some psychiatrists thought he genuinely was mentally ill, a psychotic, and I think I even remember reading that at least one psychiatrist had diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, but then we have at least one other psychiatrist saying that it was a conscious invention probably referring to the story about Sam Carr and the dog and all that, and that Berkowitz wasn't someone suffering from psychotic delusions. So, who knows? But where was I? Oh yeah, so after receiving the killer's first letter, the police tried to make sense of the quote-unquote Son of Sam moniker. They conjectured that the killer may have been a veteran, because supposedly U.S. soldiers in Vietnam would sometimes refer to themselves as quote-unquote sons of Sam. As it turns out, Berkowitz was in the service, but he served in Korea, not Vietnam. And in retrospect, the Sam reference seems to have nothing to do with his time in the military. Another theory was that the name Sam may have been a reference to the devil, because traditionally there's a lot of kind of cutesy folk nicknames for the devil, like Old Scratch, Old Nick, Old Sam, and then there's the uh, saying Sam Hill, which I think is a euphemism for hell or damn, and I think the exact etymology or origin for Sam Hill is still a matter of contention to some degree. Anyway, so there was a popular reporter by the name of Jimmy Breslin. People knew his face, and they bought the New York Daily News, which he wrote for, specifically for him. He wrote an article demanding that the killer stop. The headline read in bold letters, Give up. It's only way out. The killer responded. Breslin received a handwritten letter on May 30th of 1977. Centered on the back of the envelope were neatly printed lines reading, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, and it was signed 44, as in the 44 caliber killer. And so the letter begins, Hello from the gutters of NYC. And anyone else an aging Gen Xer like me who remembers that old 80s metal band Overkill? They had a song called Hello from the Gutter, and I think it was at least partly inspired by this. Hello from the Gutters, or Hello from the Gutter, became like a, a pretty well-known Son of Sam reference. But anyway, I'll continue. So many digressions. It's in my nature, I guess. Hello from the Gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies. There's the edgelord thing again. When they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC, New York City, of course. And from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. A little redundant there, cracks, cracks. JB, I'm just drop Jimmy Breslin. I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 caliber killings. 
I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. T tell me, <laughs> sorry, tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? And this is important because the uh, 29th of July would signal the anniversary of the first shooting. You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. I think Donna Loria was the first victim. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me in a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking thirty-eights. Edgelordy. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Miss Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation. 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. And I believe NCIC is the National Crime Information Center. And here's the names. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties. Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B. Jimmy Breslin, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get off your butts. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. And then signed, Son of Sam. And it's funny, I'm so used to things like modern mass shootings, like Sandy Hook, I think there were 28 dead in that case, or that 2017 Las Vegas shooting, what was that, uh, 61 dead, that while I was watching the Son of Sam series, I kept thinking, wow, ultimately the guy only killed six people, and he had the whole of New York City in a panic. And I don't say that to be crass or insensitive, the murder of even one innocent person is, you know, one too many. I think maybe it just goes to show how bad things have gotten in that sense and how maybe we've all become a little desensitized because things like mass shootings have become somewhat commonplace. But I think in fairness, there also may have been this additional psychological component with the Son of Sam killings where he really was kind of like a ghost in the night and you never knew when he was going to strike next. And that just kind of put everyone on edge. But yeah, the Son of Sam shootings had a huge impact on the collective psyche of New York City. Weapon sales went up, women began cutting and covering their hair due to the fact that the killer seemed to target girls with long dark hair. 
And on top of that, during the summer of 77 in New York, there was also a massive blackout that gave rise to widespread incidents of arson, looting, rioting, perhaps in part also fueled by a declining economy, so it was a very dark and tense time. So in the lead-up to the anniversary of the first Son of Sam shooting, which had taken place on July 29th, which I just mentioned while reading the Breslin letter, uh, 1976, there was a growing fear that the killer would choose the occasion to strike again. And the fact that the killer teases as much in the Breslin letter may actually have been, at least in part, what sparked this fear. But either way, on the night of the 29th, the cops went all out, a task force that was described as being as big as most American police departments canvassed the city. There was at least one false alarm, but no Sam. The next shooting finally came a couple of days later on July 31st. The victims were Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante, both 20. The couple were kissing when a man approached and shot them both in the head. Moskowitz was the killer's first blonde victim. She later died of her injuries at the hospital. Robert Violante survived but lost his left eye. Stacy would be the killer's sixth and final murder victim. And I'm not sure how important this is, but I still found it interesting. They play a clip from back in the day where a reporter mentions how the Son of Sam killer had managed to outlast and outdo Jack the Ripper. And once again, perhaps somewhat desensitized by things like modern mass shootings, I looked up Jack the Ripper and was surprised to learn or see that he had only killed five people. Five too many, but you get my point. But the cops finally got a break. On the night of the Moskowitz-Violante shooting, a local resident had witnessed a car that was parked too close to a fire hydrant being ticketed. Shortly after, she saw a young man walk by with something dark in his hand. The man seemed to be studying her. Frightened, the witness, who I believe had been walking her dog, quickly fled home and supposedly shortly after getting inside heard gunshots. A detective named James Justice, you can't make this stuff up, at least I think that's how it's pronounced, J-U-S-T-U-S, -U -U uh, was tasked with looking into any summons or parking tickets issued on that night. He found one that had been issued to a 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy, belonging to a certain David Berkowitz. On August 9th, 1977, Justice telephoned the Yonkers police to inquire about David Berkowitz. As luck would have it, the dispatcher who took the call was a young woman by the name of Wheat Carr. She personally knew of Berkowitz. She informed Justice that he lived behind her and had shot her family's black lab. Technically, it was her father's dog, and her father's name was Sam. The next day, police investigated Berkowitz's car, breaking in without a warrant. They found a gun, a duffel bag full of ammo, maps of the crime scenes, and an unpublished Son of Sam letter. Four Brooklyn detectives staked out the Yonkers apartment building where Berkowitz lived. A young deputy sheriff, who also happened to live in the building, offered to assist the detectives by pointing out Berkowitz. He sat in the car with them, and supposedly at 8.45, although I've seen an account that contradicts that, saying it was closer to 10 p.m., he pointed out Berkowitz, who was heading for his car. 
Berkowitz managed to get into the car, but law enforcement now had their guns trained on him and ordered him to turn off the ignition and exit the vehicle. There's multiple accounts of how the exchange went, but as it's told in the series, one of the officers or detectives asked him if he was David Berkowitz, and he replied, No, I'm the son of Sam, and you got me. And as I've already mentioned, Berkowitz was a young postal worker, and I was kind of surprised by just how young he was. He was only 24 years old at the time of his arrest. And I think I remember hearing or reading that the average serial killer tends to be a bit older, maybe late 20s or 30s when they first start killing. I don't know. And not to defend a serial killer, but I remember thinking it was a bit strange that they kept painting him as this kind of loner who was a failure in life or failure at life. And I'm thinking... Wait, he's only in his early 20s, holding a job and living on his own. Seems a little early to be labeling someone a failure. But you could argue he became a failure or a dropout of the game of life when he started shooting innocent people in the head. But I mean a failure based on his age and what he had or hadn't accomplished by that point. He was only 24. Anyway, another thing that struck me is just how happy Berkowitz looked during his perp walk. He was smiling ear to ear, almost looked giddy, which leads me to believe he knew he was going to get caught eventually, and that maybe in a way he didn't really mind. It gave him a chance to finally get to openly bask in all that attention. And so now to get back to Maury Terry. Terry was also from Yonkers and lived less than a mile away from Berkowitz's apartment building. And one thing that the series pushes repeatedly is this idea that the police sketches and eyewitness accounts depict someone who didn't look anything like Berkowitz. And to some degree, I think this is true. Some of the sketches do seem to depict someone who looks quite different than Berkowitz. But there were also eyewitness reports that did describe someone more closely matching his description. Such as that of Jody Valenti, one of Berkowitz's first victims. She survived being shot and described the assailant as a white male in his 30s with a fair complexion, about 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighing about 200 pounds. His hair was short, dark, and curly in a quote-unquote mod style. Yes, Berkowitz was technically only in his 20s, but seeing as people in both their 20s and 30s can tend to generally have a youthful appearance, it can be hard to determine the age of someone in that range. And the description does seem to match Berkowitz's features, the dark wavy hair, pale complexion, and relatively short stocky build. Valenti's father offered a similar description and reported seeing the person in question sitting in a yellow car. In fairness to the series, though, I guess it might make sense if some of the descriptions match and others don't, if, as suggested, Berkowitz really wasn't working alone. But Maury Terry, who I believe at this point was still working at IBM, was captivated by the case and decided to start researching this connection between Berkowitz and the Carr family. And so I believe Maury began looking through the phone book and discovered a John Wheat car. Now, there was something I found a bit strange or confusing. The dispatcher who knew of Berkowitz was named Wheat Car. Apparently, her first name was Wheat, but then her brother's name was John Wheat Car, as if maybe Wheat was another family surname, a kind of hyphenated last name. I thought I must have missed something, but no, it seems to be the case. Strange. 
Maury Terry's friend, who they interviewed for the show, talked about how John Wee Carr was actually in their homeroom when they were kids, and that he was kind of a loner, didn't have many friends, and supposedly people used to tauntingly call him Wheaties. Maury had remembered how one of the monikers the killer had rattled off in the Breslin letter was John Wheaties. He began to wonder if John Wee Carr, the literal son of Sam, could have somehow been involved in the killings. Maury's friend gave him a picture of John, a high school yearbook photo or something like that, I believe, and Maury was struck by the similarity when he compared the photo to one or more of the Son of Sam police sketches. Sam Carr had a reputation for being a strict, perhaps even abusive, disciplinarian, and it's claimed in the show that he had even been known to lock the children in the attic. Maury remembered the Borelli letter. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic. I am the son of Sam. And I remember thinking to myself at this point when I first watched the series that, wow, maybe John Wee Carr was involved somehow and maybe had even written or dictated at least a portion of the Son of Sam letters. But then again, if he was involved, why would he use the John Wheaties moniker or the Wicked King Wicker one? Uh, Maury points out that the cars lived on Wicker Street, I believe. Dropping these kinds of hints seems like a risky move that could potentially lead law enforcement right to his door. But I guess it's all relative. If you're going around murdering people, you're already living a pretty high-risk lifestyle. But most killers seem to prefer not to get caught, at least not right away or too easily. The other possibility is that Berkowitz was just a deranged loner who was obsessed for some reason with the Carr family. But one thing that you can't deny is that there was a definite connection between Berkowitz and that family. And before I forget, I should stop to mention that there was actually another car brother named Michael who could have been involved as well, I suppose. And one thing I thought of was if Berkowitz, in fact, wasn't acting alone and he was in cahoots with the car brothers, either John or both, maybe the son of Sam letters were, in a sense, intended to be a kind of revenge against their abusive father, an attempt to publicly ruin or shame him. Pure speculation on my part, but I think it makes a kind of sense if, if, you know, they were in cahoots with Berkowitz. So now we move into episode two, and as you might imagine, it picks up where the last episode ends. Does I really have to say that? Uh, David Berkowitz is now in police custody, and the process of determining his fitness to stand trial is underway. And there was a little moment that kind of gave me a chuckle. They show an old clip of a reporter interviewing the Brooklyn district attorney, and the DA is making the point that being clinically insane doesn't always translate to being considered legally insane. And the reporter goes, even a man who says he gets his orders from a dog? Well, maybe chuckle. And so it's around this point during the discussion of whether he's fit to stand trial or not that they get into what I mentioned earlier psychiatrists or psychologists suggesting or theorizing that he has a hatred of women, possibly suffers from sexual inadequacy, and they bring up the fact that not long before the killing started, and I'm not sure when he found out he was adopted, but 
he was adopted, and supposedly shortly before the killing started, he managed to track down his birth mother, and he hadn't received the warm welcome that he had wanted or expected, and she basically rejected him. And I think the theory that he had issues with women, that he may have been a misogynist, makes perfect sense, especially in the context of the mainstream narrative that he was working alone, you know, stalking the streets, targeting women and couples. It seems like a, you know, a no-brainer um, to suppose or assume that he targeted women and couples because he was jealous and angry at the fact that he couldn't get laid or find a relationship or whatever, to put it crudely. But does that theory or profile still make sense in the context of Maury Terry's suggestion that Berkowitz wasn't working alone? I suppose technically it could. If for the sake of argument he wasn't working alone, it, it still could have been his idea to specifically target women or couples. You could also posit that maybe his co-conspirator or conspirators, plural, may have shared his misogynistic worldview. But, and, and I don't want to spoil anything, Maury Terry's theory would seem to imply that this wasn't just about a deranged loner with a grudge against women, um, you know, taking to the streets with a gun. There was something bigger and spookier going on here. And a point someone made on the show was that, strangely, the Son of Sam murders seem to lack certain components that you often find with a kind of sexually motivated killing. No binding or restraint of the victims, no attempt at sexual assault, just these kind of cold execution-style shootings. They played an old interview with a postal worker who knew Berkowitz and shared this kind of chilling little anecdote where Berkowitz, I think in the break room, told a female co-worker, you shouldn't wear your hair so long because Sam likes or targets girls with long dark hair, or something like that, paraphrasing. I wonder what went through her head after the fact when she realized in retrospect that she had been in the same room with this infamous killer who had the whole city on edge and that he was speaking of her to her face as a potential target. Pretty crazy. And there was another part I found interesting where they play what I believe is a police recording of David Berkowitz and he's talking about why he committed the murders. And it's funny, here, here's this nocturnal killer that terrorized a whole city, and you might expect him to have some deep menacing voice or something, but he's just this kind of short, pudgy guy with a weaselly sounding voice. And he says in this kind of excited tone, referring to his victims, that he didn't hate them, they were just people, that he did it for Sam, for blood. And I think, you know, I'm someone with a pretty good BS detector. And when I listen to David Berkowitz speak, he comes across as, once again, weaselly and manipulative. Uh, someone who's full of shit, to put it in, you know, crude vernacular. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that Berkowitz's seeming lack of credibility somehow discredits Maury Terry's theories, because a lot of the dots Maury connects, he does so on his own, through his own kind of detective work. He's not just relying on the claims of Berkowitz. Oh, and then there was this kind of interesting little Easter egg, to use video game terminology. Something flashes on the screen, but they never address it. They quickly show some images of newspapers from back in the day relating to the Son of Sam case. And one headline reads, Sam changed after LSD trips, took drugs as soldier in Korea. And I tracked it down. It's a daily news headline dating back to August 12th of 1977. And I'm thinking... 
We're not going to talk about that. In fairness, I don't think it really makes a difference. I doubt some acid trips turned Berkowitz into a serial killer. But as someone who's fascinated by psychedelics and their effects on consciousness, I still thought it was pretty wild. It's kind of surreal thinking that the person who would become the son of Sam at one point was tripping balls in Korea. It's a colorful and fascinating world we live in. Uh, anyway, so it's around this time that Maury Terry, who had grown tired of his IBM job and had been investigating the Son of Sam case on his own, approached the editor of the Gannett with his theory that Berkowitz hadn't acted alone. The editor, or editors plural, wouldn't greenlight his story, but they did encourage him to keep digging. And so, as he put it, he traded in his IBM key card for a press pass, or something to that effect. Now, I don't know what the official take is on this, but the show puts forward this idea, a part of Maury Terry's theory, I believe, that Berkowitz couldn't have committed the Moskowitz slash Violante, or is it Violante? I'm not sure. Uh, my apologies to the family if I'm butchering that. But he couldn't have committed those particular shootings on that night because the math doesn't work out, so to speak. The argument is that Berkowitz wouldn't have had enough time to both collect the parking ticket from his vehicle and then shoot Moskowitz and Violante five blocks away. Remember, there was a witness who claimed she spotted who is assumed to have been Berkowitz, you know, retrieving the ticket from that yellow Ford Galaxy. And then shortly after, she gets back inside her house and she hears gunshots. And so the thinking is that maybe at least on that night, Berkowitz was merely serving as a lookout while someone else, perhaps one or more accomplices, actually shot Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante. Maury had become convinced that the Carr brothers were involved, but the Gannett refused to publish the story, citing their high journalistic standards. But the Post, on the other hand, apparently, you know, not so picky, and they published the story. So finally, this idea that the Cars, not the band, may have been involved, uh, you know, was out there. And so now enters Jim Mediger, a former NYPD detective turned reporter. Mediger had access to Berkowitz, and the two had developed a certain rapport. At one point, Berkowitz passed him a note claiming that there was a larger plot, saying people want my blood, but they don't want to listen to what I have to say. There are other, quote-unquote, sons out there. God help the world. So Maury Terry, and I think a partner or associate from the Gannett, finally went to the authorities. They brought everything they had to the DA. The evidence suggesting Berkowitz may not have been acting alone and that the Carr brothers may have been involved, etc. And the DA pretty much said thanks, but no thanks. And so it seemed like, in general, the powers that be didn't want to stray from the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz had acted alone. There was a fear that the case was already in jeopardy of falling apart. As previously mentioned, the police had broken into Berkowitz's car without a warrant and had to rush around to find a judge to issue them one after the fact. On top of that, it was an election year, and the police had held the largest promotion ceremony in New York City history, based at least in part on the success of closing the Son of Sam case. A local teen had informed Murray of a new lead, 
There was a path that ran between or behind the building where Berkowitz had lived in the car home, down into a hundred-year-old tunnel system known as the Old Croton Aqueducts, under or in the area of a historic estate called Untermeyer Park. Supposedly, locals sometimes referred to the aqueduct or aqueducts, plural, as the quote-unquote gutters, which Maury saw as yet another connection to the Breslin letter, which, if you remember, opens with the salutation, hello from the quote-unquote gutters of NYC. Maury's old friend, who I mentioned earlier, who had been interviewed for the series, talks about how, after the Son of Sam murders, he had actually walked the area with Maury, and supposedly they had found some disturbing stuff. Dead animals, specifically dead dogs, all sorts of graffiti, and other people had reported finding dead dogs in the area as well. Some of them mutilated, mostly German shepherds for some reason. At least one dog had its ear cut off. They journeyed into the belly of the park and eventually came to an old decrepit pump house that local kids had nicknamed the Devil's Cave. And Maury's friend claims that inside that structure, there was blood on the floor, messages or symbols written in blood on the walls. Was it really blood? Could it have been, you know, red spray paint? Had it been tested at all? Um, I don't know. I believe Maury's friend probably thought it was blood, and in fairness, there were multiple reports of mutilated animals, so it's not a stretch to assume that the disturbed individuals, maybe rebellious dirtbag teens or whatever, who hung out in that area killing dogs, could have just as easily used the blood from those animals to vandalize the walls. And I know it sounds really wild, but apparently security had reported witnessing things like robed figures with torches, um, to have heard chanting, they claim to have found hoods and capes. And so, to be honest, I start to feel torn when we get to this kind of thing. On the one hand, this is the type of stuff that can make your BS detector go off, chanting robed figures, animal sacrifice. And even though this is the late 70s we're dealing with, I almost get a satanic panic vibe. Once again, I'm an aging Gen Xer. My teen years kind of started with Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and ended with Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails, so to speak. My teen years kind of straddled the 80s and 90s, and I can remember growing up during the so-called Satanic Panic. There was this almost palpable hysteria in the air. There was fear that the devil was around every corner, backwards masking, you know, backwards messages and rock music, recovered memories, claims of Satanic ritual abuse, occult messages and Saturday morning cartoons, etc. So a whole lot of bullshit, to be blunt. Kind of fun, though, to be honest. But I kind of get that vibe from this satanic cult in the aqueducts kind of thing. But on the other hand, it's not impossible. It's not even necessarily improbable. I myself was a dirtbag teen. Long hair and concert shirts, drinking in the woods, listening to heavy metal, etc. Still listen to heavy metal. Uh, perhaps some graffiti. Statute of Limitations is up on that, right? Hopefully. So rebellious kids in general, especially in the 70s and 80s, were often drawn to dark, forbidden stuff. Dark rock, music, heavy metal, and even though I'm not someone who believes in the supernatural, and I think that the satanic panic was much ado about nothing, as a fan of that music, I can tell you firsthand that, yeah, stuff like Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, and especially the even darker and more extreme stuff like Slayer, Venom, or really, you know, hardcore death metal, etc., there were a lot of occult references, satanic-looking album art, songs referencing the devil, and 
and in general this kind of reveling in the dark side, so to speak. So, once again, not really a stretch to imagine or assume that a bunch of kids or youngish people on the fringes might hang out in this abandoned, run-down area and get drunk or high and vandalize shit, maybe even as awful as it is, you know, because I imagine a lot of you listening are animal lovers like myself, maybe might even kill dogs or do whatever with the blood, and supposedly the group that met in the area was known as the Children, Kind of sounds like uh, like a group from The Walking Dead. The Saviors, The Whisperers, The Children. Why not? And then they interview this kind of expert on the occult. I believe they refer to him as an occult historian. And he talks about the rise in interest in the occult in the West and how it kind of branched off into two directions or camps. On the one hand, you have the kind of lighter side, the New Age movement, interest in Eastern spirituality, reincarnation, yoga, that kind of thing. And then on the other hand, you have the darker side, Satanism, black magic, etc. And I think, in a sense, he's not necessarily wrong to draw that dichotomy, but at the same time, I think it's probably a bit of an oversimplification, and that it might not be quite that clear-cut. We have people like Eliphas Levy, or Levy, who we'll talk about shortly, and Alistair Crowley, who maybe some Christian types or those who haven't delved that deeply into the occult might label as black magicians, and believe me, Crowley did a number of things that would make him worthy of being called a black magician, and I wouldn't blame anyone for mistakenly referring to him as a Satanist. Crowley had a very strict religious upbringing, and this caused him, I believe, to rebel against Christianity, in a sense, and to do things like adopting the name, you know, adopting names like Tumegatherian, Greek for the Great Beast, or calling himself the Great Beast 666. But he was also into yoga, Eastern philosophy. I believe both Levy and Crowley were both into uh, the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, that kind of thing. Um, Levy perhaps more so, although I'm not certain about that. There's things like astrology and tarot that could fall on either side of the occult divide. But as someone who had a Catholic upbringing... Those things definitely weren't looked upon, you know, very fondly either. Engaging with those things was seen as a kind of flirtation with the occult and opening yourself up to demonic influence. But if you really look deeply at what people like Eliphas Levy and Crowley were up to, I don't think it's correct to call it Satanism. A big part of what they were into was ceremonial magic. In the 19th century, we had the rise of the spiritualist movement, psychic mediums and seances, that kind of thing. And there was also a rise in the popularity of secret societies or magical or esoteric orders, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which Crowley belonged to before branching out on his own. And it was often well-heeled gentlemen who belonged to these orders, people of means and good reputation, as well as intellectuals, authors, poets, such as in the case of the Golden Dawn, W.B. Yeats, Bram Stoker, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, so on and so on. And ceremonial magic was a part of such orders, and does often involve summoning demons, as satanic and black magic-y as that sounds. The idea was to summon a demon or spirit or some other kind of entity, and bend it to your will, or perhaps commune with it if it's some kind of angelic or higher. 
sort of being. But we've all probably seen those circles of protection or binding, those strange sigils that ceremonial magicians would draw on the floor to protect themselves from whatever it was they were conjuring. But ideally, these entities weren't to be summoned for outright nefarious purposes, although often probably towards relatively selfish ends, such as the pursuit of wealth or occult or hidden knowledge, that kind of thing. And this kind of thing can be traced back at least to the Middle Ages, with texts like the Ars Goetia, aka the Lesser Key of Solomon, a pseudepigraphal text attributed to the biblical character King Solomon, who is thought to have built the first temple with the aid of demons or spirits he had bound to his will. And in that vein, this type of thing can be traced even further back, into rabbinic literature, the Talmud, the Book of Tobit, etc., but the Ars Goetia is something I find absolutely fascinating. It contains a whole roster, or who's who, of the aristocracy of hell, and what their areas of expertise are, what they can do for you if properly summoned and bound, find lost objects, grant secret knowledge, help your love life, etc., etc. And this is kind of a strange synchronicity, but as I've been working on this episode, I've been letting my YouTube watch later list play in the background. And just a little bit ago, a video I saved for later, quite a while back, popped up. It was a review of the horror movie Midsommar by a uh, content creator named ComicBookGirl19, I think. She's really cute, by the way. But that's neither here nor there. But she brought up the movie Hereditary during the review and mentioned what I myself had caught while watching Hereditary. That the demon in the film, Payman, is one of the demons in the Ars Goetia, the Lesser Key of Solomon. She also brought up the absolutely brutal decapitation scene in Hereditary. Holy crap. But anyway, back to the Sons of Sam. So at this point, they revisit the Son of Sam letters and point out all the supposed occult references Maury Terry found in them. So there's Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, yep, that makes sense. And then there were a couple that I felt were a bit of a stretch. They say the word brat means a kind of small devil. In fairness, Berkowitz did put the word brat in quotes in his letter. But speaking as someone who has a lifelong interest in things like mythology, demonology, fantasy, that kind of thing, I've never heard of some specific kind of demon or devil referred to as a brat. But just because I've never heard of it doesn't mean it isn't a thing. So I researched the etymology or the etymological roots of the word brat. It had nothing to do with demons or devils. I also tried to search for the word being used in the context of, you know, referring to a demon or devil and not a goose egg. Uh, once again, just because I couldn't find something doesn't mean that they're not correct. Um, and near the end of the letter addressed to Captain Borelli, Berkowitz, assuming he wrote the letters, writes, I'll be back, I'll be back. And this was pre-Terminator. And the show suggests, that, cracking myself up, this was taken from some occult book or book about the occult or demons called Black Easter. And I remember thinking to myself, holy crap, is this some kind of occult work or something like the Satanic Bible that I've never heard of before? And I looked it up and it's actually just a fantasy novel by a science fiction writer by the name of James Blish who is well known, at least in part, for writing Star Trek novelizations with his wife. Here's a brief synopsis of the book. 
Black Easter is a fantasy novel by American writer James Blish in which an arms dealer hires a black magician to unleash all the demons of hell on earth for a single day. And I found a PDF of the book online, and maybe I'm nitpicking, but the word the devil character speaks near the end, or words, are, but I shall be back for you. I shall be back for you all. So a bit different than simply, I'll be back. And so I mentioned that we'd be touching on Eliphas Levy again. Levy was a 19th century French occultist, and I mentioned him in that Baphomet documentary I did because he's credited with creating that iconic Baphomet symbol, that cross-legged hermaphroditic sabbatic goat figure with one hand raised pointing upward and the other lowered pointing downward. And the Cliff Notes version is that it was intended to represent balance or a union of opposites. It wasn't meant that I'm aware of to represent the Christian devil. But there was a spooky coincidence where one of the Son of Sam shootings took place near a discotheque named Eliphas. I don't know if the disco was named after Eliphas Levy or what, you know, but interesting. Given the popularity of the occult, it could very well have been, especially back in the 70s, but Eliphas is also just a male given name. It can be traced back to the Bible. I believe it was the name of one of Esau's sons. Or for the sake of argument, Berkowitz could have been just some loner, you know, who had an interest in the occult, and he may have just been attracted to the discotheque because it reminded him of Eliphas Levy, and so he thought it might be a good place for one of his shootings. But I believe Paul Giamatti, as the voice of Maury Terry, draws a comparison between the Son of Sam symbol, found at least in one of the letters, and a sigil associated with Eliphas Levy. I believe the Eliphas Levy symbol that they mention and show in the series is actually a goetic symbol of Pax, as in a pact with a summoned demon or entity. I'll show them side by side in the YouTube version. There are some similarities, but they're definitely not the same symbol, and I believe in the series they kind of claim they are. The Son of Sam symbol has two small circles, which I think are meant to represent the male and female signs, where Levy's has three. They both have cross-like elements, but they're placed differently. The Son of Sam symbol lacks the large triangle and outer concentric circles of the Levy symbol or sigil, and the Son of Sam symbol also lacks the occult wording or names following along the curve of the outermost circle. But speaking of the occult wording in the Levy symbol, this is one of the biggest stretches in the show, I think, that really jumped out at me. And in fairness to Maury Terry, maybe, you know, principle of charity here, he wasn't suggesting that this was evidence. Maybe he was just noting an interesting or spooky coincidence or pointing out that one thing was kind of reminiscent of another, but weren't necessarily connected factually. But two of the four words on the outside of the Eliphas Levy symbol are Berkyle and Amasarak, I think. And Paul Giamatti, as the voice of Maury Terry, talks about how he had remembered hearing how black magicians would sometimes utilize backwards language, anagrams, that kind of thing, and points out how Berkyle contains Burke, as in Berkowitz, and Amasarak is like Sam and Carr. Um, I hope he's, you know, he wasn't suggesting this is some kind of evidence, because that's a symbol dating back to at least the 19th century, so before Berkowitz and the Carboys were even born. 
Was he perhaps suggesting that there was something, you know, spooky going on? Perhaps. Um, that's something I didn't mention yet. The series mentions how, at least when he was young, that Maury was very religious or devout, to the point where he would often fill in as an altar boy on short notice and that kind of thing. So was his faith perhaps coloring or skewing his judgment to some degree and causing him to overplay or overemphasize the satanic cult angle? Probably to some extent. But on the other hand, Berkowitz could have been and probably was interested in the occult to some extent. There's the mention of Beelzebub, the strange symbol, the whole, you know, strange idea of offering up human blood as sustenance to a thousands of year old, you know, years old entity. And whether Berkowitz actually believed his own narrative or not, the idea could have been spurred by an interest in the occult. So we talked about Jim Mettiger, the retired cop-turned-reporter. Well, the proverbial shit hit the fan when he provided the Post with pictures of Berkowitz sleeping in his jail cell. The Post headline read, Sam Sleeps. Maury was upset, fearing that Mettiger had gone too far and they would lose access to Berkowitz. City officials were out for blood, and a police investigation was open to determine how the pictures got out. In the meantime, Maury managed to track down the make and model of John Carr's, well, car. In fact, he discovered, <laughs> dad joke. In fact, he discovered that it was parked at the car home, albeit buried under snow left by a recent blizzard, which I'm guessing was the historic blizzard of 78, but I'm not sure. Uh, he was thinking that the prodigal son, John Wheaties, had come home. But just then, Maury's mother called, informing him that John Carr had been found dead in Minot, North Dakota, the victim of an apparent suicide. Maury wrote an article about the suicide and the connection between Berkowitz and the Carrs and the possible involvement of a cult. The Post published it. Not long after, Mettiger was arrested for arranging to pay for the sleeping Berkowitz photos. Maury found the timing of the arrest suspicious and wondered if it had been retribution for his publishing the story about John Carr. And then came yet another strange development. The usually docile Berkowitz became unruly and violent at a court hearing, rejecting the advice of his lawyers, kicking and biting officers, yelling Stacy was a whore, I'd kill her again. He also pleaded guilty to all six murders. The implication made in the show seems to be that Berkowitz's behavior was in line with what the authorities wanted and that maybe Berkowitz was somehow gotten to or convinced to act the way he did and to plead guilty to the murders so that the powers that be could finally be done with the case and perhaps to also help quash this bothersome notion that he might not have acted alone. And on a side note, there was one of the biggest cringe moments I have ever seen in my life here. They show an old clip of a reporter interviewing Stacy Moskowitz's mother after the hearing, I believe, and he accidentally calls her Mrs. Berkowitz, and it's one of those things where you can feel yourself squirm in vicarious discomfort or embarrassment, and Stacy's mother, understandably upset, angrily says, don't you ever call me Berkowitz or Mrs. Berkowitz, something like that. Anyway, speaking of cringe, so they also interview Maury's ex-wife for the series. I believe her name is Georgina Byrne, and she seems like a nice lady. I'm just joking around here. But there was this odd anecdote 
where when they were first dating, he took her to the zoo, I think, and then to the site where one of the couples was shot or murdered by the son of Sam. So she describes how they're parked there at this murder scene, and dust and the wind comes on, and they kiss. And after listening to his theories about the case, she says, It's not dust in the wind for you. You have more work to do. Or something like that. There's something almost Seinfeld-esque about it. And now that I think about it, didn't Seinfeld have a uh, Son of Sam reference? I think the joke was one of the characters suggested that a good serial killer name would be Son of Dad. But anyway, once again, onward. So Maury actually travels to Minot, North Dakota and meets with local law enforcement. Apparently, if I have the story right, John Carr had been staying in a housing unit on an Air Force base. And I'm not sure if they mentioned this on the show, but I just read this in an archived New York Times article. Supposedly, he originally went to Minot while serving in the Air Force because I remember watching the series and thinking, why is this sketchy guy living on a military base? But he stayed on in Minot after he was discharged. And I guess by the time of his alleged suicide, he was no longer welcome on the base. And it was even suspected that he may have been dealing drugs, perhaps directly out of his housing unit, I'm not sure. But local law enforcement went to the unit to talk to him because he was technically trespassing at that point. And so they interview the now-retired deputy who went to his door as he was announcing himself, a shot rang out. He immediately went inside to investigate, and John Carr's girlfriend, who happened to be there, led the deputy to the bedroom where he found John Carr lying dead on the floor with some kind of long gun, I'm not sure if it was a shotgun or a rifle, down by his legs. As he describes it, there was blood on the ceiling and skull fragments and brain matter against the wall. Maury lined up interviews with some of John Carr's friends. They claimed that Berkowitz had actually come to Minot on at least one occasion and met with John. And they also claimed to have seen John scrawl the Son of Sam symbol that we discussed earlier on a phone book some four months before the letter containing it had been published in the papers. They also interview a mental health professional for the show, a man by the name of Lee Slater. He claims that John Carr came to his clinic as a quote-unquote unreferred person. He was agitated, upset, and pacing. He said he thought someone might be trying to kill him and that he might be in trouble with the law back in New York. He also claimed that he was connected to Berkowitz and that he had information that the police might be interested in. The mental health professional in question also claims that John admitted he had been involved in some kind of witchcraft. In fairness to this Lee Slater person, he also states that there had been reports in the area of strange symbols painted on trees and that kind of thing. Kind of makes me think of the, you know, the reported graffiti in the old Croton Aqueducts area, but he admits he's not sure if that's true or not. And I just went back and checked, and it looks like the series refers to Lee Slater as a former mental health counselor. So I take it he's not an actual psychiatrist. And I don't point that out to disparage him. I've personally had some really good therapists over the years who were nurse practitioners or whatever. I was just wondering if he was bound by doctor-patient confidentiality, which I think in general is supposed to continue after a patient's death, because he doesn't seem to mind spilling the beans here. They include clips from old interviews with local law enforcement, and there's one guy in particular named Terry Gardner, 
who at the time was a deputy with the Ward County Sheriff's Office, and he kind of makes my BS detector go off a little. He reminds me of something straight out of Central Casting. He's got the cowboy hat, a big old mustache, and sunglasses. Looks like he's got chewing tobacco or gum in his mouth. He kind of reminds me of the trope you see in movies where you have the young cop or sheriff's deputy who wants to come across as manly, but they're kind of bumbling or douchey. Kind of like David Arquette's character from the Scream movies. And I feel bad saying that because he could be a really good guy and, a, a, you know, a competent cop who's you know, really good as job. Just because someone comes across a certain way doesn't automatically mean that they're full of shit. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover and all that. But it sounds like a lot of what he has to say is based on other people's anecdotes, and I don't know how much of it has ever been verified. Apparently, John Carr was the leader of some kind of satanic cult in the area. There was talk about the killing of German shepherd dogs. So in are there other kinds of German shepherd? Well, I guess you could be an actual German shepherd. Anyway, so in fairness, similar to what we had with the old Croton aqueducts area, talk of them drinking blood and urine, I think from the dogs, uh, gross, from a chalice. What do you guys want to do this weekend? Let's hang out in the woods and drink dog piss. Anyway, uh, Terry Gardner does seem confident that John Carr did kill a German shepherd behind a building in the area where he's being interviewed. And you know how the kids nowadays like to talk about bringing the receipts, you know? If you're going to claim something, you should be able to back it up. And one of the law enforcement officers had an actual receipt proving that one of John Carr's friends had paid a taxidermist to mount a German shepherd's ear. Not the whole dog, an ear. And remember there were reports of German shepherds being mutilated in the area of the aqueducts. At least one had a missing ear, so that's pretty interesting. But it was theorized in the show that one possible reason why John Carr may have taken his own life is because maybe there were people higher up than him in the cult, if there was a cult, and there may have been some pact in place, some kind of oath of loyalty, where if you ratted on the cult, they would come after your family. So maybe he took his own life rather than putting his family in jeopardy by, you know, talking to the police. Or maybe if he was involved with Berkowitz and the Son of Sam killing somehow, he may just have chosen to kill himself rather than Chance ending up in prison for murder. But Maury Terry finally arrives back home in New York, only to be met with the shocking news that Michael Carr, John's brother, is now dead as well, dying in what some deem to be a suspicious car accident. The tire tracks at the scene seem to suggest that he could have been driven off the road by another vehicle. Given these new developments, the Gannett was finally willing to grant Maury free reign. Some in law enforcement, as well as some of the victims' families, were now also beginning to doubt that Berkowitz had acted alone. John Santucci, the district attorney of Queens, to the chagrin of other officials, publicly stated that he himself doubted the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz had acted alone, and officially opened an investigation. So we now move into episode 3. So Maury's investigation is starting to garner more mainstream attention. An old news show called What's Happening America decides to do a story on the topic. The producer is skeptical and wanted verification of Maury's claims. So he retraces Maury's steps with him, the pump house, the quote-unquote satanic graffiti, etc. 
Next, the producer and his team went to Minot. In an attempt to avoid any undue influence, Maury didn't join them. They didn't find anything that disputed Maury's claims. In fact, the team's investigation seemed to verify Maury's story. Spooked by what they found, they began to feel like they were being watched, and even stayed up all night guarding their tapes. Wheat Carr, the sister of the late John and Michael Carr herself, didn't deny her brother's involvement in the occult. They interviewed Joseph Borelli, the aforementioned commanding officer of the Queen's Homicide Squad for the show, and despite all this seeming evidence that the Carr brothers, especially John, were somehow involved, he still clings to the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz had acted alone, and to this day calls the whole cult angle quote-unquote bullshit. But Maury turned his attention to Michael Carr. Apparently, Michael had a drug and alcohol problem and had turned to Scientology for help with his addiction. John joined the church as well, but Michael was a higher-level member. Okay, so now we get to something I find absolutely fascinating that I hadn't previously known about. So during Maury's investigation, supposed reference to something called the Process Church of the Final Judgment with links to Scientology kept coming up. Now, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, or simply the Process Church, was founded by Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimston. And by the way, I love the name de Grimston. Perfect surname for a cult leader. But the two were a couple and had met at the Church of Scientology in London. They were both studying to be auditors, and apparently they were both good at it, but they were beginning to develop their own ideology and desired something more radical than Scientology. I was reading online that they were supposedly ejected from the church in 1962, but I believe the series claims that they left of their own volition in order to found their own movement or organization. Originally, they had named their splinter group Compulsions Analysis, just doesn't have the same ring. That might be the driest, most boring-sounding name for a religious movement I've ever heard in my life, but in fairness, I guess compulsions analysis was originally meant to be a kind of psychotherapy technology or system to help strip away barriers and compulsions in order to allow a person's true spirituality to emerge. Something to that effect. And that kind of reminds me of Scientology itself. If I'm not mistaken, L. Ron Hubbard originally intended for the system he developed, Dianetics, to be a branch of mainstream psychiatry and to function as a kind of psychotherapy. But he was rejected by mainstream psychiatry, which would lead, at least in part, to the festering resentment and distrust of mainstream psychotherapy and medicine that came to characterize both Hubbard as an individual and Scientology as an organization. So he basically decided to turn this system he had developed into a religion. Tax breaks and all that. Now, de Grimston and McLean were both into the occult, and I think de Grimston is actually still alive. Yeah, British occultist, apparently he's 85 years old now and living in Shanghai, China. I believe Marianne McLean passed in 2005. But according to the series, they went to Mexico and had witnessed the ravages of a brutal hurricane and came back to Britain with a more apocalyptic message or worldview. There have been some who have referred to the process as a form of Satanism. There might be some merit to that, but I don't think it's that clear-cut. I think some of their literature and their teachings do talk about Satan 
and in a way it kind of reminds me of Eliphaz Levy's Baphomet symbol. They emphasized a kind of balance or union of opposites, embracing both good and evil, that kind of thing. And I noticed that their aesthetic really reminded me of that of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. De Grimston wore black robes, had a goatee, long dark hair. Uh, there's footage of members walking down the street, all in black, walking dogs on chains. German shepherds, I believe. The series claims that German shepherds became a kind of symbol of the organization. And out of curiosity, because I was wondering who might have cultivated the look first, I looked it up and apparently the Church of Satan and the Process Church of the Final Judgment were both founded in 1966. Of course, the process existed before that as uh, compulsions analysis, etc. But apparently 1966 was the year it officially became the Process Church of the Final Judgment. So as I was saying, according to the show, they returned from Mexico with a more apocalyptic message. Good and evil needed to be brought together. The middle class or bourgeoisie needed to be wiped out. Um, they wanted to hasten the end times, that sort of thing. And that sounds similar to Charles Manson's philosophy. And in fact, the process supposedly sent out groups to the states. L.A., New York, New Orleans, Frisco's Haight-Ashbury district, which has become synonymous with the 60s hippie counterculture. And according to the series, there was indeed a connection between Manson and the process, and they even suggest that he got his whole apocalyptic philosophy from the group, helter-skelter, igniting a race war to help bring about the end, etc. And I'm thinking, come on, really? And then they play a video clip or footage of a very sober and composed Manson casually talking about Scientology and the process. Yes, Manson on the vi in the video mentions the process by name. And then there's this guy, Ed Sanders. And I have to admit that I had no idea who he was, but I was reading up on him after the fact, and he seems like a pretty cool guy. I guess he's considered by some to be a kind of bridge between the beat and hippie generations. But he wrote a book entitled The Family, about, you guessed it, the Manson family. And the book talks about Manson meeting the process, writing an article, possibly at the behest of de Grimston, about death, for the quote-unquote death issue of the group's magazine. Supposedly, members of the process met with Manson in jail, and the book also claims that Manson belonged to a secret California chapter of the process, but the claim was withdrawn after the publisher was sued by the group. Supposedly, a letter from Manson to Sanders claims that Manson attended a party at Roman Polanski's house with de Grimston prior to the Tate-LaBianca murders. And so around 1974, the process supposedly goes underground before splintering again. And shortly after, according to the series, the group known as the Children arises just north of New York City. And so the series asks the question or posits that maybe Berkowitz and the Carr brothers were members of this group, the Children, and that it was one in the same with the group hanging around the old Croton aqueducts, mutilating German shepherds or whatever. And it goes further. Could the Son of Sam killings, rather than the work of a deranged loner, have been a group effort similar to the Manson murders, intended to sow fear and chaos, driven by the group's apocalyptic message? or ideology inherited from the process church of the final judgment. And I want to stop to mention something I found somewhat amusing. 
So you have the process which kept splintering, and I believe McLean and DeGrimston divorced in 1974, with the lion's share of the group members staying loyal to her. Over time, her movement developed into a Christian organization, and eventually morphed into an animal rescue organization, with all mention of religion removed from its statutes. The organization's name was, or is, it's still around, I believe, Best Friends Animal Society. What I found amusing is you have all these dark, spooky cults, and at the end, you know, somehow you get Best Friends Animal Society. I wasn't expecting that. But seems like a legitimate animal welfare slash animal rights organization. Can't complain about that, but I wonder if the thing with uh, German Shepherds ever comes up. But let us crawl back into the darkness after that brief respite. So Murray Terry gets a letter from Attica, and yep, it's from Berkowitz. And in the letter, Berkowitz tells Murray that he's guilty of these crimes, but he didn't do it all. He was part of a cult, and so was John, and there's others scattered about the USA. And it ends with words that would haunt Maury Terry. Maury, the public will never ever truly believe you, no matter how well your evidence is presented. Terry Gardner, the aforementioned deputy sheriff in Minot, received the package from Berkowitz. It was full of various pieces of literature. One was a newsletter bearing a strange photograph of someone dressed like a sabbatic goat. Also included was a book entitled Anatomy of Witchcraft, containing a written message, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. And so I have to admit, when I first watched the series, this part really blew me away. But after I had time to think about it, it didn't seem that impressive as, you know, potential evidence supporting Maury's cult theory. There was a young woman named Arliss Perry, a college student who was very religious. She was brutally murdered inside a campus church. It's like something out of a horror movie. If you're squeamish, it gets pretty bad, even considering everything we've already talked about. She was found on the church floor, naked from the waist down, with her legs spread apart. She had been assaulted with two large candle holders. I think they said they were about five feet long each. One had been shoved up her vaginal opening. The other had been slid up her blouse under her bra, emerging out by her neck. If that wasn't bad enough, an ice pick had also been jammed into her skull. And so my first time watching that part, I assumed that it was a murder that had just happened recently, and that somehow Berkowitz, through his cult connections, knew about it. But turns out that the murder had taken place about four years prior. So anyone who kept up with the news could have known about Arliss Perry, any one of his fellow inmates in Attica might have known about the case, or he might have read about it in the prison library, who knows. There were a couple of interesting coincidences, though, to be fair. Apparently, she was from Bismarck, North Dakota, so less than a couple of hours away from Minot, I believe, where, of course, John Carr had been and where he ultimately killed himself, you know, as far as we know. And then also, I think there was a mention that at one point she may have tried to convert cult members with her church group, and it could have been payback for that, or maybe as proposed in the show, she could have seen something she shouldn't have, I don't know. 
And if I felt like there was a stronger link between Arliss Perry and Berkowitz, or this supposed cult, I wouldn't jump ahead and spoil this, but I figure I might as well, you know, while we're on the subject. So there was a campus security guard by the name of Stephen Crawford. He was originally a person of interest, but the police didn't have enough to nail him. Fast forward to 2018 using modern DNA testing, they were able to definitively link the murder to Crawford. The police arrived at his home with a search warrant, but Crawford locked the door and committed suicide with a pistol. And that's actually how the series ends. The final scene is actual footage of the police outside Crawford's home, and you hear the gunshot ring out. And so I thought that was kind of a weak note to go out on, where, where, you know, were they suggesting that since he shot himself before the cops could get to him like John Carr, there must have been a connection, or maybe like John, he shot himself rather than divulge information about the cult. There was one interesting thing they found, and I'll probably save that for the end. But in 1981, Berkowitz sent another letter claiming he had more info about Arliss Perry. The Santa Clara Police Department sent detectives to interview him. Maury was afraid if they pushed him, he'd clam up again. Apparently, Berkowitz, understandably, I suppose, was worried he might be seen as a snitch. He already had a nasty scar running along his neck from an attempt on his life by a fellow inmate. He claimed he was afraid that they, I imagine the cult, not the band, would kill his father if he gave a name. And just as Maury had feared, Berkowitz stopped cooperating. Eventually, Maury received another letter from Berkowitz, but to his disappointment, it was to inform him that he, Berkowitz, couldn't be a stool pigeon, citing the Code of Attica. Another break finally came in the form of a prison informant named Vinny, who had been in Attica with Berkowitz. Vinny claimed he had learned about the cult, once again, not the band. New details like, one well, of my favorite bands, I can't resist. New details like who was the lookout, who was the shooter. He claimed the supposed cult was involved in drugs and pornography. And perhaps his most sensational claim is that the Moskowitz-Violante shooting had supposedly been captured on film. And that, in fact, it had been an orchestrated snuff film meant to go to the highest bidder. Vinny said those involved, including the cameraman, used code names, but that he knew the cameraman's real name, Ron Sisman. Ron Sisman was a playboy known for supplying cocaine and for filming girls. On Halloween night, Sisman and a young woman by the name of Elizabeth Platzman went back to his apartment. Someone pushed in from behind them and shot them both in the back of the head execution style and proceeded to ransack the apartment. It's theorized he was looking for something valuable, perhaps the film of the Moskowitz murder. As the series puts it, Sisman was friendly with a man with a thing for bizarre videos who lived in a sprawling Long Island mansion in the Hamptons. In Vinnie the Informant's letter, the man was referred to by the initials R.R., Maury and his partner from the Gannett, Michael Zuckerman, surmise that the letter must be referring to Roy Radin, a millionaire showbiz promoter slash producer with a mansion in the Hamptons, known for his wild cocaine-fueled sex parties. Reportedly, Radin had a giant leather bed in his house, half the size of a basketball court, purely intended for orgies. A TV actress by the name of Melanie Haller had been raped by Raiden and beaten by two men and two women when she refused to take part in one of his orgies. The police, 
not the band, I know, awful time for a joke, raided his house and found a videotape of Holler. Vinny had claimed that Raiden was a high-level, well-respected member of the supposed cult. Maury was quick to believe the claim, but Zuckerman was skeptical and backed away from the investigation. Roy Raiden went missing on the 13th of June, 1983, en route to a business meeting. His remains were discovered several weeks later by a beekeeper and a forest ranger. Apparently he had been shot in the back of the head, a lot of people getting shot in the back of the head in this story, and dumped in a canyon near Gorman, California. Maury Terry and his aforementioned girlfriend at the time, Georgina Byrne, quickly bought plane tickets and headed out west so Maury could investigate Raiden's death. Maury shared his info with the LAPD, and according to Georgina, they believed him and even gave the couple directions to the spot in the canyon where the body had been found. Georgina talks about how the body had been laying in the hot sun for a month, and even though it was now gone, the pungent smell still lingered. Maury climbed a tree and called out to Georgina, informing her that he'd found a Bible. The way it's told in the show left me unsure if the Bible was found in the tree or under it in the brush or something. But according to Georgina, it was found about 20 feet from where Raiden's body had been. And it was open to the part that says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And I think technically that saying appears both in Isaiah in the Old Testament and then again in Corinthians in the New Testament. But in the series, they show an open Bible with that verse clearly marked or emphasized as if someone had drawn a rectangular box around it with a pen. Was that just something the graphics department did, or was that an actual picture of the Bible they found? I don't know, and I ask that or point out that distinction, because I'm not sure if Georgina is suggesting that maybe the Bible was meant to be found, and the killer or killers plural had highlighted the passage, or maybe that the killer or killers, not the band, had, is that getting old yet, had read the passage before killing Raiden, maybe either sardonically or in a ritualistic capacity. Like a lot of things in the show, it sounds spooky at first, but when you really think about it, it doesn't really add up to much. Eventually, there were arrests in the Raiden case, and the actual story behind his murder is perhaps even more bizarre than Maury's cult theory. It centers around the 1984 Francis Ford Coppola film, The Cotton Club. Bet you didn't see that coming. The case even became known as The Cotton Club Murder. Raiden had purportedly invested over $30 million in the film. Karen Greenberger, a society hostess and ex-girlfriend of a well-known studio executive and film producer by the name of Robert Evans, was upset with Raiden, fearing that he was pushing her out of the project, costing her a role as producer and potential profit from the film. So she hired three men to kidnap and murder Raiden. One of them, a contract killer by the name of William Menser, shot Raiden multiple times in the head, and as gruesome and over-the-top as it might sound, also, for good measure, used dynamite on the body to help prevent the police from IDing it. All four were convicted and sentenced. In 1987, Maury released a book about his investigation into the Son of Sam case entitled The Ultimate Evil, An Investigation into America's Most Dangerous Satanic Cult. I noticed on Amazon that the subtitle has been changed to The Search for the Sons of Sam. On the most recent version, I imagine this probably has to do with the Netflix series, probably just an attempt at cross-promotion. 
But the book kind of paints Berkowitz as having taken the fall for the cult. Even Stacy Moskowitz's mother was convinced, believing that Berkowitz couldn't have shot her daughter, suggesting it was physically impossible. And she's probably basing that on the argument that Berkowitz supposedly wouldn't have been able to both retrieve the ticket from his car and been present at the Moskowitz violante shooting. And I mentioned the satanic panic earlier. Well, at this point in the story, it's in full swing. There were even people suggesting that the Smurfs were satanic. Uh, Maury Terry had allied himself with Geraldo Rivera and regularly appeared on his daytime show. Maury's friends were concerned that the tabloid nature of the format could make him look bad. Maury's credibility took something of a blow when, as we just discussed a moment ago, Raiden's death turned out to be connected to the Cotton Club and not a cult. Maury finally married his longtime girlfriend, Georgina Byrne, but unfortunately it wouldn't last. They would divorce several years later, but remained lifelong friends. Now we jump forward to 1993, Flannel and Doc Martens. I still have my Doc Martens. But anyway, Berkowitz now claimed to have converted to Christianity. He befriended a retired detective. Apparently, the two bonded over their shared religious faith. This retired detective also knew Maury, and he mentioned that he had become friendly with Berkowitz. This mutual friendship finally provided Maury with another opening to Berkowitz. He wrote Berkowitz a letter, and they arranged a meeting at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in upstate New York. We now move into the fourth and final episode, and it begins where we last left off, with Maury meeting Berkowitz at Sullivan Correctional. A well-behaved and somewhat soft-spoken Berkowitz told Maury how he felt everything that happened was his destiny, that it was inevitable. He talked about how he had been born out of wedlock, that both his parents had been married to other people. But the Berkowitzes had adopted him, taken him in and raised him as their own. Despite growing up in a loving home, he describes having always had emotional problems and always getting into trouble. He also describes feeling as if there was some force trying to pull him outside into the night. He spoke of his time after the service as having been a big time of transition, during which he felt vulnerable, empty, and alone, without direction. He claims he met some people at a party, others who were also looking for companionship. Maury would ultimately be criticized for seeming to ask leading questions, and I myself noticed that issue as well while watching the interview footage included in the series. He had been working on this theory for so long, and here he finally was sitting face to face with Berkowitz. You could almost feel this kind of intensity or desperation there, as if he felt that this might be his last chance to finally get those answers he was looking for for so long. So, for instance, instead of asking, did you and this friend group regularly gather, and if so, where, he says, was it Untermeyer Park, and then Berkowitz would smile or nod in the affirmative and elaborate. So is that kind of thing leading, or is it just keeping the conversation on track and asking what needs to be asked? I don't know. But Berkowitz affirms that, yes, he and this group did meet in the Untermeyer Park, Old Croton Aqueducts area. He says they would sit on a circle of rocks, hanging out and talking. And once again, he described a kind of force or presence in the darkness. He goes on to describe how the conversations turned more and more to topics like witchcraft and black magic, and that they began to hold what he described as little religious services. 
He also claims that he did eventually witness animal sacrifice, and that in response he found himself both repulsed yet fascinated. According to Berkowitz, during his formal initiation into the group, he had to form a blood pact and swear an oath to serve the devil. He also described how members undergoing initiation, including himself, were made to hand over pictures of their families as a show of loyalty, with the warning that if they ever betrayed the group, their family members would be targeted and presumably killed. Maury asked him if he was surprised by the sudden deaths of the Carr brothers, and Berkowitz replied that he wasn't, suggesting that, such deaths, mysterious car accidents, etc., are common for those who are wrapped up in the occult. And I wasn't sure if Berkowitz was implying that these kinds of sudden mysterious deaths were the work of other cult members cutting people's brake lines or running them off the road, etc., or if he was suggesting there was some supernatural element at work. He claimed that in the beginning he never would have imagined in his wildest dreams that innocent people would end up dying. And then Maury, perhaps leading again, asks him if the shootings were viewed by the cult as being a kind of ultimate sacrifice, and Berkowitz confirms that this was the case. Maury then asks him if he committed all of the murders, and Berkowitz goes on to explain that he was present at all of them, but it wasn't always him pulling the trigger. Maury then proceeds to run through all of the murders with him, and you can see that Berkowitz is starting to become visibly uncomfortable, so he admits to some of the shootings but denies being the trigger man at others, including the Moskowitz Violante shooting and the shooting near the Eliphas Disco. And the subject of the Carr brothers comes up. And Berkowitz claims that they, and I'm not sure if he meant Michael and John or just John, but that at least one of them pulled the trigger at some of the shootings. He also claimed that there were multiple vehicles and accomplices involved during each shooting. After talking about the murders, Berkowitz starts to pull back and finally refuses to name the people at the top of the hypothetical organization, or cult, if it exists. Maury's interview with Berkowitz made the headlines and stirred new interest in the case and in Maury's theory that Berkowitz hadn't acted alone. And for those of you too young to remember, Bill O'Reilly of Fox News fame actually used to host Inside Edition, and the series includes footage of Maury on that show being interviewed by O'Reilly. That caught my attention for whatever reason. And I'm not sure what show it originally aired on, but they play a clip of Maury interviewing Stacy Moskowitz's parents in which they kind of endorse Maury's view that Berkowitz didn't act alone and criticize the police for not doing enough. And I believe Maury and some of his allies were hoping that all this increased attention would pressure the police to reopen the case, but the opposite happened. The police were angered or indignant and dug their heels in. And even in the media, there was some pushback against Maury's theories and his Berkowitz interview. There were headlines like, Son of Scam, and Sam's a Sham. And then there was this kind of legendary NYPD detective named Joe Coffey, a really kind of hard-as-nails, no-nonsense cop who is known for his work trying to bring down the mob. And I think he actually interviewed Berkowitz early on in the case after he was first apprehended. But Maury Terry and Joe Coffey became public rivals, going at each other on radio shows and that kind of thing, or at least on one occasion, with Joe Coffey defending the work of the police and promoting the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz had been acting alone. 
And the weird thing is, I work construction with my family, and my father used to use this wrought iron guy with the last name Coffee, who is almost a dead ringer for Joe Coffee. Till this day, I still don't know if they were related. Anyway, so the tide was turning against Maury, and he needed allies. Enter Carl DeNaro, a son of Sam's shooting victim, who obviously survived. On the 26th of October, 1976, the 44 caliber killer, the son of Sam, shot into Carl DeNaro's car. Carl was 20 at the time, and in the car with him was 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan. Carl reported that felt like the car had exploded. He had enough presence of mind to quickly speed off before the shooter could finish their work. Keenan suffered minor injuries from the shattered glass, but was otherwise all right. Carl had been shot in the head and would eventually need to have a steel plate implanted to replace a missing piece of skull. The good-natured Denaro was happy to contribute and went from being a victim to something of Maury's protege. He would be given information like names and addresses and then would do the legwork for Maury, quickly becoming a member of his inner circle. Another member of Maury's inner circle was a Yonkers police detective by the name of Kevin Murphy. Murphy was a part of the Special Investigations Unit and specialized in crimes involving the occult. The Yonkers mayor gave Murphy carte blanche to go out and find the truth. Another NYPD detective named Don Mounts also became a member of Maury's ragtag group. They would meet at a bar about once a month on a Friday night and talk about the case. They became known as the Pine Street Irregulars. Murphy did some digging and found that the claim that David Berkowitz was a loner didn't hold water. In fact, he seemed to be something of a social butterfly. There's even a picture that I found rather interesting that's shown at this point in the series. It depicts a confident and happy-looking Berkowitz hanging out with friends. While investigating the supposed Untermeyer Park group, Murphy discovered that apparently Berkowitz even had a girlfriend. Murphy seems to have confirmed that this group did in fact exist, and that they did hang out in the Untermeyer Park area, engaging in sex and drugs, and that they supposedly called themselves the children. I have to admit my BS detector perked up a little bit there, because it seems like according to other reports, it was locals or homeless who referred to them as uh, the children, and who calls themselves the children. What a shitty name. Then again, there's no accounting for taste. Remember compulsions analysis? And I'm probably nitpicking. Others could have come to, you know, refer to them as the children, because that's what the group called themselves. In fact, upon listening back to Murphy's commentary, it sounds like he mentions that's what, you know, quote-unquote street people called them as well. And maybe the children's not that bad. It does have that walking dead ring again. Yeah, you know, gotta let it grow on you. And also, I think in fairness, as we covered a while back, supposedly there was talk of the Process Church splintering into a group called the Children, which emerged in the New York area or so the series states. Another interesting tidbit that Murphy uncovered is that apparently one of the people who hung out at Untermeyer Park with Berkowitz lived in the same building as Berkowitz on Pine Street, and yes, that's at least partly why the group called themselves the Pine Street Irregulars. The good guys got, you know, cringy names too. What's going on? Actually, I kind of like Pine Street Irregulars. I just think it's an odd, you know, it's odd that they got it from 
the street Berkowitz lived on. But this young guy who lived in Berkowitz's building drove a yellow Volkswagen, and a yellow Volkswagen had been spotted and chased at the scene of the Moskowitz shooting. So that is, you know, pretty damn interesting. Murphy tracked down the person in question and spoke with him. He described the man as having been paranoid and claiming that there were people after him, and that if he opened his mouth, he'd be killed. A couple of days later, according to Murphy, the man killed himself. And I don't want to make too light of it. There are people who kill themselves when they fear they're in imminent danger or that someone else is trying to kill them. I imagine the thinking behind it probably is, well, at least I can go out on my own terms without having to, you know, endorse someone else brutally murdering me. But on the surface, it seems rather illogical or paradoxical. I didn't want to be killed, so I killed myself. But Murphy said he tried to talk to other members of the children, but most of them lawyered up, not wanting to be implicated. There was one other person by the name of John Paul. He claimed he had been approached by John Carr as a freshman in high school, and in the beginning it wasn't too serious. He describes it as having just been a game at that point, druid ceremonies and that kind of thing, but at some point someone got to the head of this thing, as he puts it, and took it in a completely different direction. He claims it became more serious at Untermeyer Park and that he was present at a maybe 30 or 40 person initiation ceremony. He described chanting that grew in intensity and that he was brought before a cold marble slab and could hear dogs being killed and how it was one of the most horrible sounds he had ever heard. What's up with the dogs? Man's best friend. Leave the doggos alone. But in fairness to Kevin Murphy, who at the time being interviewed for this series is, you know, now retired, he does state that in this guy's case, he wasn't sure what was real, what was fiction. And uh, I agree. Uh, this guy, John Paul, kind of made my BS detector go off too. Maury claimed that through off-the-record interviews, they were able to track down members of the children who had been involved in pornography and the drug trade, and he was reminded of the late Ron Sisman. So the other detective I mentioned, Don Mounts, had been chosen to work on the cold case squad at the time he had been working with Maury on the side, and he asked to be assigned to the Ron Sisman, Elizabeth Platzman double homicide that had occurred back on Halloween night of 1981. So Maury believes, as was suggested earlier, that they may have been killed over a snuff film, put, to put it crudely, the film of the Moskowitz shooting. So Don Mounts, who at the time of being interviewed for the series like Kevin Murphy is now retired, a lot of retired detectives in this thing. Well, the shooting did take place back in the 70s, so what do you expect? But anyway, he says that Maury told him Sisman had been in a van the night of the Moskowitz-Violante shooting, positioned near a streetlight with a clear view of the shooting. And my BS detector is going off a little because I'm thinking, how did Maury know that? It's possible Maury did have solid evidence to make that claim. But it doesn't instill confidence when the detective starts off with Maury told me. But Mounts did talk to Sisman's family, and they did confirm that he had a van, and also that he had borrowed a Betamax to film his girlfriends. Did he borrow it from his parents? Imagine that conversation. A man by the name of Jesse Turner, an inmate in federal prison in Alabama, wrote to Maury claiming to have information on the Sisman-Platzman homicide. So Mounts and Murray... Now there's a show name. Sounds like a vaudeville act. Traveled down to Alabama to talk to him. He claimed to be a member of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. 
and furthermore claimed that Ron Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman had been killed by the Process Church, and that, as suggested earlier, the killer had ransacked the apartment because they were searching for the Moskowitz snuff film. Turner claims that the cult would use a film like that to bring about more chaos, because that's what they were all about, as Turner put it, using intensifying acts of random organized violence to trigger apocalyptic chaos. And in fairness to Don Mounts, he does offer the caveat that when it comes to the claims of jailbirds, you have to take what they say with a grain of salt. And one thing that dawned on me, the skeptic that I am, I was thinking that at this point, you know, Maury's book is out there. Talk of Maury's theories about a cult have been in the papers and on TV. How do you know that someone like Jesse Turner isn't just, you know, taking Maury's theories and falsely claiming to have information that fills in the blanks? Mounts also goes on to claim that just about everyone involved in quote-unquote those crimes Maury investigated had ties to the Process Church. The only reason I put crimes in quotes is because Mounts doesn't specify which crimes he's talking about. I would, of course, assume the Son of Sam and Sisman Platzman murders, but it comes across as a bit vague. I don't want to heap all the, you know, blame on Mounts, though. It could also be just how they edited the interview. And then Jesse Turner goes on to talk about how there are supposedly many different degrees in the church, meaning the process church, and that there were people from, you know, from the streets who were the real blood and guts, the real heart and soul of the movement. And what I take from that is he's saying people lower down on the ladder, the social rungs, uh, street people, disaffected people on the margins, that they were kind of the people on the ground, the foot soldiers, etc. That's what it sounds like to me anyway. Mount speculates that the children or the process offered, you know, Berkowitz a belief system to embrace and that he probably didn't initially think he'd end up killing anyone, but he got swept up or indoctrinated and they turned him into a trigger man. So we're about halfway through the final episode at this point, and Paul Giamatti is the voice of Maury, is saying, and I'm paraphrasing, it's time to end it. The only thing left is to get the irrefutable proof that will force the NYPD to act, and so that he, Maury, could finally find peace. It's time, armed with his camera, to return to David. So it's now 1997, when, yes, Maury Terry once again interviews David Berkowitz. And I should mention it that Maury got the interview on the air with the help of a respected local reporter named Sarah Wallace, who at the time was working at Channel 7 ABC in New York. Maury was familiar with her work and approached her. She notes that she could have dismissed him, but she was impressed by the evidence he presented, all the stuff about the group in Untermeyer Park, etc., and she described Maury as being Berkowitz's gatekeeper in a sense, and people were curious about Berkowitz's sensational claims that he hadn't acted alone. And an interview with Berkowitz was considered a real get, so to speak. And so they decided to put a series together and air the interview with Maury as the producer. The producer of the interview portion, at least. And so Maury starts off by asking Berkowitz if a rust-colored van a witness spotted that night, of the, the night of the Moskowitz-Violante shooting, had any significance, something to that effect. And Berkowitz, seemingly less full of shit than usual, not making my BS detector go off as much yet, nods sadly and says, yes, it was part of a group. 
And Maury then asks him why was the van there, and Berkowitz replies that there was some filming going on, and that someone wanted the film for somebody else. And I have to say that Maury kind of starts with the leading questions again. Even Sarah Wallace says that it quickly became clear to her that Maury had his own agenda. Instead of asking who was in the van, he firmly asks, were they, recording a, were they recording a snuff film? Was one of the individuals in the van probably doing the filming named Ronald Sisman? Paraphrasing a little bit, but that's pretty damn close. And he did inject the term snuff film and invoke the name of Ronald Sisman. Again, Berkowitz nods and affirms what Maury's saying. But at this point, when Maury's theories and book have been floating around for years, how can you even tell anymore whether or not Berkowitz might be just parroting Maury's own theories back at him? But Berkowitz does claim that, yeah, he knew Sisman, and he was there that night. But it's a little hard to try to get a beat on whether he's being honest or not. And so Maury asks him if the cult was behind the Son of Sam murders, and Berkowitz says there was another group, a more elite group, woven into it. And Maury jumps in and says, was it the process? And I'm thinking, you dummy, let him tell you. Ask him what the name of the organization is without putting words in his mouth. But like I was saying, anyone could have known about the process, you know, by this point via Maury's book, etc., but at least, you know, make Berkowitz come to you a bit. Tease the names out of him instead of putting them in his mouth once again. And so next, Maury asks him if process leaders were among those gathered at the time the 44 caliber killings were being planned. And Berkowitz looks down and answers, yeah. So Maury asks him if he ever heard process members or leaders talk about Charles Manson. And Berkowitz says something in a kind of sad or wistful yet half-hearted, not so convincing way, which kind of characterizes his demeanor throughout most of the interview and says, yeah, I heard something, something like that. But I think it's already a given that there was some connection between Manson and the process. Like I said, Manson's on tape talking about the process by name. Maury brings up Arliss Perry, who Berkowitz had brought up years earlier in the, you know, goodie box he sent to Deputy Terry Gardner in North Dakota. But here Berkowitz just seems glassy-eyed, disinterested, and barely there. He doesn't seem to really want to talk about anything. Even Maury's allies, you know, seem to agree that ultimately, once again, sadly, as with his previous Berkowitz interview, he was asking leading questions and being too aggressive in his approach. And I'm not saying you need to coddle him because, oh, poor serial killer. No, it's that if you're too aggressive or forceful, you risk pulling, you know, having him pull back and clamming up again. Sarah Wallace thought that the series did get people to think, but the response wasn't what Maury wanted. It still wasn't the acceptance and vindication of himself and his work that he was looking for. And so in 1998, Detective Kevin Murphy of the Special Investigations Division wrote up a report and prepared a presentation with his conclusions, which he presented at the District Attorney's Office in Queens before a gathering of New York's top brass. He concluded that there must have been at least five people involved in the 44 caliber, a.k.a. the Son of Sam shootings. As he tells it, they basically said, thank you, we'll be in touch, and he never heard from them again. 
Detective Don Mounts also wrote up a report with his findings, submitted it to the New York City Police Department, and they brought it straight to Joe Borelli, who, if you remember, was the commanding officer of the Queen's Homicide Unit, who the first Son of Sam letter was addressed to, and who strongly clung to the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz had been acting alone. The word came down shortly after that Mounds was to close the case and get it out of the office. But as the final episode is nearing an end, even some of Maury's allies, including Kevin Murphy, who believed that there were definitely others involved, thought Maury tended to take the satanic cult angle too far. But Maury became very frustrated, frustrated that he couldn't get to the bottom of the story and that others didn't want to see the evidence in front of them. And Carl DeNaro shared a poignant little anecdote near the end. He got in an argument with Maury, telling him it was his case too. And Maury said, oh yeah, what did you do? And Carl replied, I got shot in the head. When I first watched the series, I remember I kept wondering what happened to Maury. Everyone interviewed was talking about him in the past tense. I thought at the end we were going to find out that he died a sudden mysterious death, that he'd gotten too close to the truth and the cult or whoever got him. But no, he just went downhill, became a two-fisted drinker, smoked two packs a day, and developed heart trouble, and ended up in a hospital bed on oxygen, and passed away December 10th, 2015. Kevin Murphy was with him hours before his death, and he was still talking about the case. Murphy says that people, including himself, sometimes thought Maury was obsessed, but he states at the end of the day, he was still right more times than he was wrong. Now, I know I mentioned earlier that the series ends with the suicide of Arliss Perry's suspected killer, and how I thought it probably wasn't really that relevant to the Son of Sam case, but there is one interesting tidbit I should note. The police found a box in his closet with seemingly important papers in it, and also in the box was a copy of Murray's book, The Ultimate Evil. Kind of spooky. But then again, the killer could have had it, not because he had a connection to Berkowitz, but simply because it references Arliss Perry, the girl he killed. But the show ends by noting that the Pine Street Irregulars still meet in their quest for answers, which I think is nice. What do I think happened? What do I think the truth is? Well, the Son of Sam murders took place decades ago, and most of us are probably just used to hearing the mainstream narrative that Berkowitz was a deranged loner who acted alone and blamed the shootings on his neighbor's dog. So at first blush, the idea that there may have been others or even some kind of cult involved probably sounds like some outlandish conspiracy theory. But no one exists in a vacuum. We all have things that influence us, our environment, the people we hang around with. And I don't think it's implausible to suggest that Berkowitz may have fallen in with a group of ne'er-do-wells who hung out around the Untermeyer Park and Old Croton Aqueducts area, partying and dabbling in the occult, John Carr possibly among them. And as I said near the beginning of the review, there's this irrefutable connection between David Berkowitz and the Carr family. And as I also suggested earlier, there seems to be, you know, only two basic possibilities. Either the Carr brothers, or at least John, were directly involved with Berkowitz, or Berkowitz just had this strange obsession with the Carr family. Because of course we, the royal we, I wasn't there, we found out once Berkowitz was arrested that this mysterious and ominous Sam figure referenced in the Son of Sam letters was Sam Carr. 
And there was his whole story about how Sam was a 6,000-year-old demonic entity who gave Berkowitz his, ma his marching orders through his dog. Did Berkowitz ever really believe that? Who knows? But goes to my point that the Carr family was on Berkowitz's radar. There was some connection or fixation there. And then we have the John Wheaties thing and references to the abuse Sam Carr supposedly subjected his children to. And that got me wondering, how did Berkowitz come by this information? Did the Carr brothers tell him directly about what they had purportedly suffered at the hands of their father, Sam Carr? Or was it simply neighborhood gossip that Berkowitz had somehow heard? And then there's the matter of Wheat Carr, the Carr brothers' sister, who had worked as a police dispatcher, informing the police that Berkowitz had shot their dog. If Berkowitz was an associate of the Carr brothers, why would he have shot their dog? Shooting the dog seems to make more sense if Berkowitz was actually operating under the deluded notion that the dog was a demonic entity or the mouthpiece for a demonic entity ordering him to kill. Perhaps shooting the dog was his way of trying to free himself of its influence. But then there's the fact that Berkowitz seems to have eventually ditched the narrative that he was under the influence of Sam and his dog. And although I'm not a psychiatrist, he doesn't come across as delusional in what little we can glean from televised interviews. Does the process in the Untermeyer Park groups, if they were indeed involved, but their seeming obsession with dogs somehow tie into the shooting of Harvey, Sam Carr's black lab? Could one of the Carr brothers, you know, have shot the dog or encouraged Berkowitz to do so in an attempt to wound the abusive father they resented? Pure speculation. And then if you're still thinking the Carr brothers, or at least John's involvement, still seems far-fetched, there's the fact that that mental health professional in Minot claims that John Carr told him he was connected to Berkowitz and feared he was in trouble with the law back in New York. And then there's the taxidermy receipt for the mounted German shepherd ear acquired by law enforcement in Minot and claims of mutilated dogs, at least one with a missing ear in Yonkers, and the claims that Berkowitz had traveled to Minot on at least one occasion, although without solid evidence to back it up, the claim that Berkowitz was in Minot might, you know, might just boil down to hearsay. And then also there's the fact that the Carr brothers were supposedly involved in Scientology, and given the fact that the Process Church of the Final Judgment was a splinter group of Scientology, with a scattered presence throughout the U.S. at the time, it's not too far-fetched to imagine that the Carr brothers, their interest in Scientology could have led them to the process, and then they shared the, you know, the group's apocalyptic Manson family-esque ideology with Berkowitz and the Untermeyer Park group, who knows. And then there's Kevin Murphy, the NYPD detective who specialized in crimes involving the occult, who came to the conclusion that at least five people were probably involved in the shootings, and the fact that he traced a member of the supposed Untermeyer Park group who drove a car, you know, the same make as one spotted and chased at one of the crime scenes uh, to Berkowitz's building. To be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure if we'll ever know all the facts. At least there's the knowledge that the Pine Street Irregulars are supposedly still at it. That's all I have, guys. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of The Week in Doubt. And as always, thanks for listening. Holy crap, I put a lot of work into this one. Whew. Till next time.